We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Here, Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. Uh, welcome. Great to have you here. Uh, playing the Chaka Khan. Chaka Khan. Chaka Khan. Uh, reason is number 29. Rolling Stones top 200 singers of all time. Chaka Khan's on the list. And yet, Celine Dion isn't? Come on. What is that? All right. How, how long do you think we can take this? I'm thinking maybe mid-May. All right. Another, uh, just, to, well, sort of a bizarre day. And, you know, this, uh, th- this story about the, um, about the balloon. <laughs> Remember, we, we were talking about it on Friday. And then that sort of came to uh, uh, to a head over the course of the weekend. We'll talk about that coming up uh, in a sec. But there's a couple of big stories, including tomorrow, everybody getting ready for um, uh, the big premier's conference with the prime minister. Remember, this was, uh, uh, well, it's been three years in the making when you think about it, because it was uh, B.C. Premier Horgan, I believe, back in in the beginning, the first wave of this, trying to get the prime ministers, sorry, the premiers together with the prime minister. And now, obviously, it is happening. So tomorrow. Uh, hopefully some progress there as well. Um, some sort of resolution moving forward, some sort of reform, some sort of anything really would uh, would be good. All right, so, uh, uh, and, and then a, a, an earthquake out of Buffalo, uh, as we hear about the horrifying situation that is going along the Turkey-Syrian border, uh, which, of course, is just absolutely devastating. Certainly nothing like that uh, closer to home in Buffalo and and just, you know, sheer coincidence, really, at this point. But um, uh, a couple of very bizarre stories going on. We'll talk about that coming up uh, over the course of, uh, of this afternoon. All right. Um, let's get started with uh, the balloon, because it sort of started on Friday. And and uh, we're going to play a report here. Uh, this is the Associated Press, uh, Jackie Quinn. And and you, you, at first it was a weather balloon, and then no, 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 it's not a weather balloon. It's a survey, uh, a surveillance balloon. And um, it just gone off course. U.S. said, no, we're not buying that. Listen to this. Never should have been allowed to complete its mission. Many Republicans, like Ohio Congressman Mike Turner on the House Intelligence Committee, say the administration was too slow to act. Sort of like tackling the quarterback after the game is over. On NBC's Meet the Press, he says the surveillance balloon should have been taken out long before it neared sensitive sites like nuclear silos in Montana. Senate Democratic leader Chuck Schumer on WABC says the White House handled it properly, waiting until the device was over water. We protected civilians. We gained more intelligence while protecting our own sensitive information. He says intelligence officials will be briefing lawmakers and it's premature to criticize a cautious response. Adding there were similar balloon missions during the Trump administration. I'm Jackie Quinn. Wow. Anything you can compare to the Trump administration. I guess nothing. It just, you know. It doesn't matter. All right. Uh, China's reaction to the downing of this balloon. This is ABC's uh, Elwin Lopez on how they felt about uh, losing the, ba- the balloon. 
China condemning the decision, calling it an excessive reaction, adding that it retains the right to respond further. Beijing has insisted the balloon was a civilian aircraft used mainly for weather research, claiming it had seriously deviated from its scheduled route and that they had limited ability to control it. A senior U.S. official insisting the balloon's path was purposeful, saying it flew over sensitive military sites, including nuclear missile facilities and command and control centers. All right, there you have it. Uh, and and Will has uh, dug up some uh, footage, and and I'm going to explain this to you, and and uh, and then you'll actually hear the balloon getting hit. But you can see, all right, the 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 fighter pilots are sizing this thing up, uh, making sure they, because you don't want to miss it. Right. It's pretty big. Uh, sizing this thing up, getting it in their sights. And then listen to this. There you have it. It's pretty much over with. All right. Was that a pea shooter? I'm not sure what that was. All right. <laughs> and, and with that, the balloon uh, was in the drink, as they say. All right. Now, so we certainly know the horrific situation that's going on in Turkey and Syria and, and the devastating earthquake they had, uh, have had there. Oddly enough, one closer to home, certainly nowhere near as bad, but, uh, Associated Press, uh, Jackie Walker, listen to this. This was just in Buffalo. The U.S. Geological Survey reports a 3.8 earthquake hit the Buffalo area around 6.15 a.m. The county executive tweeted it felt like a car hit his house. The shaking lasted a few seconds. Seismologist Yarabalta Wheel says it's not unusual. Pre-existing fault lines and pre-existing fractures uh, throughout the geological time, when they get activated, that caused an earthquake. The earthquake occurred hours after a 7.8 quake hit Turkey. It's a coincidence. They are not related. The seismologist says earthquakes happen all the time every day. Think of earthquakes like car accidents. You only hear about the most devastating one. Altwill says the Buffalo and Turkey quakes were the strongest to hit the areas since records have been kept. Julie Walker, New York. How bizarre is that? Maybe that's just everybody realizing that the Bills are out of the playoffs. Maybe that's just, ah, ah, just it's finally hitting them, maybe. I don't know. All right, uh, lots to uh, lots to follow. Oh, Grammys last night, too. We'll talk about that. We're going to talk to Dr. Sean Watley coming up uh, in regard to the premiers and the prime minister uh, meeting tomorrow. Uh, lots to talk about, uh, and, and we'll leave it at that because uh, we're plumb out of time. We have... Uh, a decision in front of us, and we're putting a choice in front of Prime Minister Trudeau. He can choose to invest in the public universal healthcare system and hire more healthcare workers, or he can choose to go down the path of private for-profit care, which will only make things worse. We believe that we need to rebuild our healthcare system, and that means investing in the workers, investing in the frontline workers to make sure people get the best care possible. For the upcoming uh, discussions with the, the premiers, Our priority is that any agreement that does not include clear commitments to hire more frontline healthcare workers would be a failure. And that what we need to happen right now are investments to save our healthcare system to hire more frontline healthcare workers. Ottawa needs to urgently partner with provinces to retain, to recruit, to train, and to respect healthcare workers. That is something that can be done and needs to be done. What is he saying? Well, um, 
we need more money to hire more health care workers. Now, if that was only the solution, why couldn't we have come up with that a long time ago? That's all we need. That's all we need. You know, uh, uh, the, prime, uh, the prime minister wants reforms, conditions. Can't keep throwing, you know, good money after a system that doesn't work. Yet the NDP leader said we just need to do more. We just need to pay, put more money into the sausage factory. And, and that's how we'll fix this. Is that reform? Let's bring in Dr. Sean Watley, practicing physician, author of When Politics Become, uh, Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medicare is Failing, senior fellow with the McDonald-Laurie Institute, and a fascinating article in the National Post today. Sean, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, thanks. Uh, the headline, Doctor, is uh, how Jugmeet Singh uh, is using confusion about private care to support the status quo. What do you mean? Well, I think in Canada, we've forgotten what it means to actually have a private enterprise. And so just very quickly, that means you choose the product or service, or at least you shape what it looks like. You determine the volume. So if you're in the business of doing hip replacements, you decide how many hip replacements you can safely do at a high quality. You determine the price, you manage the service, you decide who you're going to serve, and you own the customers. We don't have that in Canada. And I think a lot of Canadians don't want that. And that's what he's using as a as as a diving board to say oh my gosh this is what we're going to have that's not what's going on at this moment we actually are having an expansion of publicly funded services now i'm going to take back a small bit of what i just said i said a lot of canadians don't want it actually survey after survey says that canadians are a lot more open to maybe going Mm -hmm. to a full-blown fully privatized approach where um, service volume price management customers and facilities are all determined outside of the government and the regulatory umbrella but that's a whole separate discussion we're not having that discussion and yet uh, mr singh's leveraging the current change to talk about something that's not on the table at all as far as i can see um and i think through this pandemic what we've all learned and whether you're a healthcare professional or just a citizen on the street i think we've come to the um uh, to, to the uh, to the resolve that this just is not working that this is broken that this needs to be fixed and that band-aids and more money here more money there is not going to uh, to solve the problem uh, and in many ways we've talked about this this is a turning point for canadians because the surveys are showing people you know they just want it done um so are are we at a turning point here because it seems that what what the ndp is suggesting is no it's just more money keep doing the same thing into the same system just hire more doctors more nurses hire more doctors more nurses well, well, the tricky thing with any excellent political, you know, a political position. So Mr. Singh has said, listen, we're starving to death. We need more money. We need more workers. Well, there's truth in that, right? If you bleed a patient so far that mm-hmm. they can't even stand up. Yeah, they need actually a transfusion right now. And that's what our healthcare system needs right now. We're so far behind the other um, um, European countries with respect to the number of doctors and number of hospital beds and number of nurses per patient per population. Yes. Okay. We need more, but will that fix the problem? And it won't. I think what we need to do is separate political risk from management risk. Right now, everybody blames 
either the feds or the provinces if your hospitals don't function properly. So what happens is the politicians are acutely worried about what happens on the management side in hospitals, for example, and then the managers in the hospital are acutely worried about what the politicians think. And so there's worry on both sides. Neither side wants to take a risk or do anything. And yet that's what we need. We need to fundamentally redesign and allow people, not redesign from the center, but allow people to experiment with different ways of providing care and offering services based on the needs of the people in their community. Um, uh, we talked about this last week, uh, that the, that, uh, the NDP leader had suggested that, uh, the BC government is buying back their private healthcare, uh, systems or clinics or such. What is BC doing? How are they reforming? So I don't know the details on that, but again, you know, we've, we've been through this before where government actually buys up companies. In fact, our current government owns a pipeline, but we went through CNR, Air Canada, Bell Telephone, Hydro One, Petro Canada, and we realized that, you know what, once you get a certain number of people in your country, you're better off to not have government running, you know, these basic businesses. So that's what it sounds like he's saying they're trying to do, but I apologize. I don't know more details about what exactly is happening in BC with this, quote unquote, buying up private clinics. I have no idea what that means. Why do you think that the public uh, opinion is shifting on this? And, you know, a recent uh, Ipsos poll, 59% of Canadians, almost 60%, um, are, are open to uh, publicly, or sorry, privately delivered public, hair, uh, public care. Is, is, can you put this toothpaste back in the tube here, or are we moving forward? Well, the, the challenge, and this is what I mentioned in my article, is that we're, we're trying to correct a sentiment or a feeling with facts. Facts won't fix a feeling. So there's a general feeling in the public that oh, salary is good and maybe even going in debt to get your education to earn a salary, that's good. But oh my gosh, investment is terrible. You know, these people that actually finance the building of the hospital, those are evil people and they're morally corrupt. We have to push back on that message and say, no, you know what, that hospital would not exist exist unless someone took a risk and financed them. And I offer a quote in the article, you know, um, if it wasn't for businesses, all we would have would be doctors and nurses standing in a field in their underwear. We wouldn't have mm. hospital beds. We wouldn't have drugs. We wouldn't have machines. Nothing would be there. And so we have to start re-educating our friends and family that actually we need to partner with industry and with government to provide great care for, for patients. You talk about re-educating people. It's amazing how the global pandemic has brought that to light and people are now finally understanding or learning about this. Oh, totally. Angus Reid's uh, survey just out a few hours ago, I saw it on Twitter, um, asking the public, you know, what, what should we do? Should we should we ask the feds to dictate how things are going to go or should we just get it done? And it's split right down the middle. And so I think there's there's a move. And then you already mentioned your survey as well. There's a move, a shift within the public saying, you know, come on, people, we just need care. And if care is being blocked because of political games being paid enough of that, let's try something new. Dr. Sean Watley with us, practicing physician, author, When Politics Comes Before Patients, Why and How Canadian Medical Care is Failing, and a senior fellow with the McDonnell-Laurier Institute. Always fascinating, doctor. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, sir. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Did you watch? Did you watch last night? Did, 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 did you? Did, 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 did you watch? 
uh, Beyonce, uh, now the most decorated artist in Grammy history. Uh, 465 Grammys, I think she has uh, already. Uh, let's bring in Eric Alper, publicist, music commentator. He is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, the Grammy just ended 15 minutes ago, giving out their 400th <laughs> award. Um, Beyonce walks away with 130. Uh, no, no, um, no. It uh, it ended just uh, just after 11:35, which is uh, pretty good for the Grammys, considering that they gave out. Um, you know, something like 79 of the 85 awards uh, starting at 3:30 yesterday. Uh, award shows not doing as well as they once did. This always seems to be the one that does. Your thoughts? You've seen a few of these in your time. How did this one stack up? How does it stack up to Grammy award shows in the past? Is it still doing it? Yeah, this was great. I mean, from the get-go, having Bad Bunny, who is a Spanish-language pop artist, he had the biggest album of the year last year. He's also um, had the biggest tour after Elton John last year. And then having um, Brandi Carlisle, who everybody loves. Um, I can't say a bad word about her whatsoever. I adore her. I'm rocking it out. So you had The Present, and then you had... 50 years worth of hip hop performers all on stage doing probably 13 minutes of the greatest performance I've ever seen on the Grammys. Everybody from LL Cool J to Run DMC, Salt and Peppa, Queen Latifah, Missy Elliott, Ice T, Public Enemy. I mean, that was amazing. Just to get them to all show up at the same time was was great. And then you had um, at the end of it, really, Bonnie Raitt win song of the year becoming the first woman yeah. over 50 years of age to win song of the year beating out seemingly everybody including taylor swift um who now taylor swift fans are on twitter and instagram asking what what and who is a bonnie Raitt? so um you've <laughs> yeah. got the old you've got the new you've got in the middle um and a great show all around i thought uh and as you said certainly from one's uh one side of the spectrum to the other uh how do you explain bonnie Raitt's win um, uh, uh, cocaine and no, um, what, <laughs> what I, what I think happened is you end up with about 3,500 Grammy voters, um, through all different experience, all different ages, all different background of, of, of ethnic background and cultural background. And when you have Taylor Swift and Harry Styles and Kendrick Lamar and Beyonce in the same category, honestly, I think they all split the vote. I was just going to say that. Is that what you think you know, happened? They split the vote there, here? There's something about winning a Grammy with like 16% of the voting. Um, and that's what happened at the Oscars. Whenever you see a surprise win at the Oscars or the Junos, you can really chalk it up to the same voters were all voting for Kendrick Lamar and Harry and Beyonce and Taylor Swift if you were under 30. And then everybody over 30 wanted and loved that Bonnie Raitt song and the album. And she probably won it with honestly like 16, 17% of the vote. So that's what I think happened, even though it really is a great song. And for people who are like, there's no good music out there anymore. Go check out Bonnie Raitt's album because she's still doing it after all these years. And, you know, uh, feeling old and thinking of that, but uh, 50 years of hip hop being celebrated. Let that one digest for a minute or two. Um, boy, yeah, considering like, it's a fad. Ex 
Exactly, Eric. I mean, that's incredible. Thought it was gonna last. Look, the entire music industry thought that it might have had a shorter shelf life than disco when it was first around. But obviously, you know, um, the the Bronx and Brooklyn and New York and L.A. um, they all had different ideas from that. And be you know, you can say all these cliches that it was the real true street music that music really hasn't had since the punk era and punk is still out there. The spirit of punk is in Billie Eilish. It's in Avril Lavigne. It's in, um, you know, Olivia Rodrigo, even though that they're pop, they're still, you know, when you put on a pair of Doc Martens and you go out on stage, that's punk. And so hip hop is just, turning into and has been in the last couple of years, the biggest and most listened to genre of music in the world. And there's no stopping it. Uh, and again, you know, as you're describing it way back at the beginning, I mean, I remember reading old Dick Clark books when they were saying the same thing about rock and roll. It's just a fad. It's not going to last very long. And, you know, and then same thing with hip hop. Uh, that's uh, yeah, it's look, incredible. The interviewers would ask Ringo Starr back in 1964 what he's going to do after all of the hits dry up next year. And he said, I'm going to yeah. open up a hat shop. Yeah. Like, like nobody thought that anybody would be around longer than a year because still, honestly, nobody ever really thinks that they're going to be around longer than a year now. It's only, you know, the top one tenth of one percent of one percent actually make it to album number two. And, you know, seeing all of those artists together on stage again um, on the hip hop side, you understand that without these artists, um, there is no Beyonce. There is no Jay-Z. There is no, um, uh, you know, uh, really like Kendrick Lamar, um, because it all has to start from somewhere. Uh, So Beyonce, now the most decorated uh, artist in in Grammy history. Uh, How significant is this? Will will she hold that title for long? Yeah, nobody's going to catch up to her. In fact, even if somebody like Taylor Swift wins four Grammy Awards for the next, I think it's nine albums, she will probably not even catch up to her because Beyonce isn't stopping. It's interesting that out of Beyonce's 33 Grammy wins, only one of them is in a major category of song of the year, record of the year, and album of the year. The rest are all in hip hop, R&B, and last night, dance and electronic. So she's never really won in the categories that are, you know, the biggest on there. And that's not to take anything away, but that's pretty surprising when you take a look at, you know, that's like a baseball player ending up in the Hall of Fame because they batted 3,000 for their 300 in their their career, um, but they've never won a batting title, you know, the, the, uh, but that's okay. I think that Beyonce as place in history it has been set for the last decade or so. And um, the ticket prices and the tour and her Super Bowl performance recently um, just solidifies all of that. And obviously, as you said, uh, crossing certain genres um, and and being uh, uh, being uh, able to to run in all of those different categories also uh, adds up, which probably a Taylor Swift wouldn't have that. She wouldn't have that crossover. Yeah, you know, Taylor Swift is not going back to country and country music is not going to play the yeah. new Taylor Swift album. Yeah. Um, especially when you're country music, you do not like when somebody starts off in country and goes yeah. pop. It's almost like you might as well just slap them radio yeah. in the face when that happens. Um, but, you know, the, there is, there's definitely something to watch in the way that Beyonce, um, Adele, 
um, artists like Nora Jones, you know, 20 years ago were just so omnipresent that it was getting played on all the formats because they were just so big. Um, you know, that, that Motown tribute that Smokey Robinson and Stevie Wonder did, um, when they did everything from tears to a clown and the way the things you do, the way you do the things you do in higher ground. And, um, those songs were all over every radio station. They were on rock, they were on jazz, they were on soul, they were on R and B, they were on pop. Um, and, uh, you know, when you have somebody like, uh, you know, Olivia Rodrigo or even Steve Lacey, a guy who was nominated for a couple of awards last night. Maybe a lot of people don't know who he is, but he was one of the first artists in history to have a song number one on the R&B charts and the rock charts here in Canada. So hmm. it's not just, um, you know, slowly but surely the blending of the genres of music and more importantly, the audiences accepting those different styles of music yeah. is slowly breaking down year after year. Yeah. Eric Alper with us, music publicist and commentator, uh, talking about the Grammys last night. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network. You can hear it right here on CHML every Sunday night. Uh, and he is with us again. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. We're doing fine, lad. Uh, fine, lads. If we can survive with that mess that we saw in and at the LA Coliseum with the, the Bush-like clash, it really didn't start out the NASCAR season on the best foot forward. As a matter of fact, they, they tripped coming in the door, and nobody stopped laughing until it was over two hours later in 150 laps of one of the slowest stock car races I think I've ever seen. So, who gets to race in this race? Uh, and this is before the Daytona 500 NASCAR. Yeah. Uh, these are there's only like 20 drivers in this race, right? Yeah, yeah. These are guys that pole are pole winners. Yeah, yeah pole yeah. winners. You know, it's the yeah. usual all star yeah. stuff. They do the same thing in the middle of the season when they do the uh, the non point stuff. But I mean, I you know what NASCAR is trying to do? And I saw your text. I mean, you texted me last. No, week. I don't know, Eric. What are they trying to do? I would love for you to explain <laughs> that to me, well, I'm, please. I'm, I'm trying to. If you wouldn't interrupt, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, of course. Well, what they're trying to do, obviously, is is establish NASCAR stock car racing in more markets. And that's why they decided to run this thing on this quarter-mile hat box of the L.A. Coliseum that was built back in, what, the 1920s or 30s and, and houses and has housed, you know, the Rose Bowl and a bunch of other, you know, noted um, uh, foot-stick-and-ball yeah. games of various pursuits. And they decided, okay, why don't we run a race there in, in Los Angeles, right in the middle of the market, and why don't we jazz it up with a bunch of uh, musical entertainment of varying degrees of talent some of it not so good, some of it okay, and jazz the whole thing up and, and hope everybody will come out in droves and watch this thing and then run this this stock car race around this dumb little tight track where you're going uh, probably faster with your grocery cart getting groceries at Sobeys <laughs> on a Saturday. You know, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, and I know what they're trying to do, but good Lord almighty, you know, they're, you're starting off the season, you're supposed to, you know, start it off with the biggest stock car race there is, the Daytona 500. But then you go and neuter the whole thing by putting that joke on the air. You know, over two hours to run, <clears throat> pardon me, 150 laps, 16 cautions. That's not a, it's not a stock car race. It's kind of like a, you know, a high-priced demolition derby, basically, and Martin Truex wins. So, yahoo, yahoo, so what, big deal. 
Uh, and I, and and if you looked up into the grandstands, you may have noticed there were a few more empty yes, than they had. Yes, that's exactly. You know? Yes, that's, that's and I was right. just that's on the tip of my tongue. It's like look up there, Eric. There's nobody there. You got it. You got it. The experiment may have worked in the first year. They had a good crowd last year, but you know, was, you know, most fans and people's short attention span theater. They said, ah, oh, yeah, you know what? If if you're going to run an auto racing sanction. At least put on a good show that way. And you and I have talked about this over the years, haven't we? You got to yeah. make sure that the show in the circus, that the elephants are good, and if they are, the people will come out to see it. See it. If it's a crappy show, they're not going to watch it. And you saw the evidence of that on uh, yesterday. Too much time is spent trying to, as you said, reach a new audience. Too much yeah. time is spent yeah. working on the packages or whatever, this or that. It's just, you know, just go out and have, as you said, a great show, a great race. And, and, yeah. and that's what will attract the fans. But it just, it, it, it just seems that, uh, they've just missed the mark, missed the mark, missed the mark, missed the mark. Well, I yeah, wanted to also ask you about F1 because Ford and Audi returning back to F1, how yeah. significant significant is that that's very big and and michael andretti's trying to get back in and put cadillac on the valve covers of what will be essentially a renault engine but bring that mark back in with three races in the usa and of course they're adding that street race in las vegas doesn't it make sense to have an american team with an american driver yeah. probably colton heard it with an american mark an american make on the motor you know makes a great deal of sense so that's what they're wanting to do they're they're starting to expand this thing now and they're going to add I think two new teams by 2026 or something along that line. And that's good. That's a good thing. It makes, you know, it makes a lot of sense. That's what they're trying to do. They've always tried to expand. F1 has their footprint and their, their variety and their notoriety in North America. And with the advent of this, this additional race in the USA to have an American team, there would be paramount, I think. And I think that, you know, Michael Andretti just sort of needs to stop criticizing F1 as being greedy and they're afraid they're not going to let him in because hmm. it's going to water down the purse money or the prize money, whatever they call it in F1. They disguise it and don't call it purse money, but that's exactly what it is. They call it show-up money, but that's the way F1 does things. The popularity, you know, the, the Netflix series that can never be yeah. downplayed. The idea, though, to me, and you and I have debated this as well, Scooters, the simple fact is F1 races take an hour and 40 to 45 minutes, yes. 50 to run. Yeah. They don't manipulate finishes. They don't add laps if something has to end under yellow. They more or less, it's more heads up and straightforward. They found out that these guys are human beings who go to the bathroom just like you and I do and swear an awful lot and stage these superhuman races around the world. But their races are nice and short and clean and tidy. And you and I know that NASCAR doesn't do that. They add laps. So they're so afraid of ending races under caution, yet only 2% of them ever do. But that's part of the manipulation on why NASCAR is struggling to yeah. regain their popularity. It's eroding, Scott. It's not yeah. getting bigger. And they yeah. better smarten up. Otherwise, they're going to lose a, bit, a lot more. And, you know, sponsorship is eroding, and they've got to smarten up. Otherwise, it may be a wound they can't heal. Although, you know, I did watch the the Netflix series, the last one where, of course, uh, Verstappen, Max Verstappen ends up winning over Lewis Hamilton in which, yeah. you know, the NASCAR officials are sorry, the uh, F1 officials F1, just yeah. completely uh, botched up. And, and, you know, you look at that and you think, Handed wow, it over to yeah, 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 I mean, well, they, yeah, they got to get the that stuff fixed, too. Right. Well they, well, they sure do. They sure do. And, and, and that's the reason why that, that race director was was dismissed and they're they're going to use a, a rotational system. They're not 
believe me, they are not perfect, and they've got a lot of things they've got to fix, Yeah, and and they will do that. But it's the simple fact is, and I believe this, and whether or not I'm off base, I don't think I am, is that the races just seem to be more heads up. Just let them, yeah. let them go, man. You don't need to you know, give people mm. their lap back when they haven't earned it. You and I have talked about this again. Yeah, yeah. this. You're kind of on the side of liking that. I have never been a fan of race finish manipulation. F1 does it less than NASCAR does, and I think that's one of the reasons why. F1 has really started to uh, to grab a hold of, the, of uh, race fans' imagination. More coming up on Sunday night, Raceline Radio Network, right here on CHML. Eric Thomas with us. Eric, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Lots of fun, buddy. We'll do it again soon. The U.S. Geological Survey reports a 3.8 earthquake hit the Buffalo area around 6.15 a.m. The county executive tweeted it felt like a car hit his house. The shaking lasted a few seconds. Seismologist Yarabalta Wheel says it's not unusual. Pre-existing fault lines and pre-existing fractures uh, throughout the geological time, when they get activated, that caused an earthquake. The earthquake occurred hours after a 7.8 quake hit Turkey. It's a coincidence. They are not related. The seismologist says earthquakes happen all the time every day. Think of earthquakes like car accidents. You only hear about the most devastating one. Altwill says the Buffalo and Turkey quakes were the strongest to hit the areas since records have been kept. Julie Walker, New York. Did you feel it? Did you feel? Did something go bump in the night about one forty-five? Uh, let's bring in Doctor Alexander Peace, Assistant Professor, Associate Editor, Marine and Petroleum Geology School of Earth, Environment and Society, McMaster University, and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you for having me on the show. So, uh, give us an update on this particular one. Of course, uh, something you know, completely uh, devastating, obviously, along the Syrian-Turkey border. It's a 7.8. Obviously, uh, the report, as you, you heard, said that the two weren't related in any way. But what can you tell us about this area and, and what was experienced in, in uh, western New York and southern Ontario? Yeah, I guess, firstly, uh, offer my condolences to mm. the, the people in Turkey and Syria uh, dealing with that uh, devastating um, event. Uh, but in terms of what we experienced here, um, I kind of have to step right back to, to plate tectonics, which some of you may uh, re- recall from school and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, and most of the seismicity that we experience is actually near plate boundaries. Uh, so in Canada, we often think of the West Coast and we talk about the big one and all of this. But we do actually also experience uh, seismicity, so earthquake activity, away from those plate boundaries in the middle of the continent. Uh, and that's actually what we experienced uh, in the early hours of this morning uh, in Buffalo. So that's something as scientists we refer to as uh, intraplate seismicity, so seismicity in the middle of the continents. And is there any way that these or any types of these are predictable? I mean, you can see it happen in a certain period of time. It's not going to happen. Or does it just happen when it does? So it is, that's a, a big question that societies forever have tried to figure out. You know, and people have spent a lot of time and effort trying to uh, predict when the next one will occur and where will it, where it will occur. Uh, and at the moment, you know, all we can do at the moment is use past events to to guide us for where to look. Uh, and if we look at the the Buffalo event, we do see that historically this is a region that has experienced um, low levels, albeit of uh, of seismicity. 
Uh, and we do see that in Ontario as well and parts of Western Quebec as well. Uh, so these are certainly areas where we have experienced seismicity in the past. Now, the other thing I'd like to note regarding uh, predicting earthquakes as well is that uh, our instrumental record of um, seismic activity is not that long compared to geological time. So we're just looking at this very small snapshot. Now, if the reoccurrence interval on a fault is longer than our very small snapshot of time that our data covers, we, we actually don't really know much about that particular uh, fault even. Uh, and that, that's a bit of a challenge for us. So in summary, it's kind of a uh, predicting seismicity is kind of an ongoing effort that's you know been one of the biggest questions for the, the field for a very long time. You talked about low-level activity uh, in and around this area, and, and again, it, it's certainly not the first time that we've heard of something like this. Does it remain at low level, whereas we hear places like Turkey, uh, there's a higher rate of this. They're actually quite prepared for these sorts of things when they do happen. Um, because it's a low-risk uh, area, does that mean that could change, or are there just other parts of the world where there is a higher risk? So what I would say is we're at no greater risk than we were yesterday before an event. Um, you know, these things happen. Uh, an earthquake of this size in this region, uh, we typically get several of these a, a decade. And this is kind of within the sort of expected, uh, you know, limits, uh, limits for that. One of the topics that you touched on in your question as well was about preparedness. Um, and something I'd like to kind of make a point on with that is that in in Canada as a whole, on, on the West Coast, you know, we have this kind of culture of preparedness. People are aware of kind of seismicity. They perhaps have a plan or something like that. Um, here in, in Eastern Canada and Central Canada, um, you know, we we don't necessarily have it in our minds as much. Um, so there is an element of that preparedness as well. And that feeds in not just at the individual level. I think that, uh, you know, the political level as well, uh, uh, we've got to have kind of at least some sort of level of awareness. Uh, what about codes, building codes, that sort of thing? We're certainly hearing uh, with climate change and such that we may have to examine certain things in regard to that. What about uh, seismic activity? Um, so that's not really my area of expertise. I'm a, a geologist rather than an engineer. Uh, and I'd hate to say something wrong about building codes and then the engineers get upset about it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm going to refrain from saying things about building codes. How much can we learn about what happened this morning outside of Buffalo? How much is that going to be studied? Yeah, so one of the interesting things is that now uh, both the USGS and Earthquakes Canada uh, have options on their websites for, you know, citizen science. So you can actually go on and provide uh, feedback of what you what you felt. Uh, and th this data is actually analyzed and used to build a uh, picture of what uh, what went on. Dr. Alexander Peace with us, Assistant Professor, Associate Editor, Marine and Petroleum Geology School of Earth, Environment and Society at McMaster University, talking about a minor quake, uh, which was felt uh, just outside of Buffalo, 145 last night. Doctor, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much for having me on the show. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. The surveillance balloon was shot down. 
Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we talked about this on Friday, and uh, many predicted on Friday that um, uh, that this balloon would not be allowed, although it strayed into U.S. airspace, it would not be allowed to stray too far out of it uh, before uh, getting taken down just to see what the heck is inside it. Uh, and, of course, uh, once it hit Montana, everybody uh, started talking about it, although apparently it was uh, over, up over Saskatchewan prior to that. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, uh, Director Emeritus, China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, and with us now. Gordon, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Thank you, Scott. So what are your thoughts of this, Gordon? Uh, because it seems almost bizarre, old, uh, you know, old spy story sort of stuff. Um, what is your take on this? It is a, an extraordinary story. I mean, we're quite used to now the concept of satellite imagery, which, I mean, at the right angle, you can read a license plate from space, I'm told. Um, a balloon seems like something quite ancient. I mean, I think there were balloons mm-hmm. used in the U.S. Civil War. Here we are, 150 years later, and we still have a using balloon technology. But in truth, I'm told it's uh, carried quite a sophisticated array of instruments. Uh, there may be some advantages to being quite a bit closer to the objects. Some may have been collecting uh, uh, signals intelligence, may have been looking for um, closer photographs of some of the, the uh, nuclear launch sites in Montana, speculated. Um, but it has caught the attention of the whole world. And I think that the fact that it became such a big story says something about how bad the U.S.-China relationship is right now. Uh, did they think they wouldn't get caught, or did it just stray too close? Uh, what do, do they care if they get caught? Good question. And I don't know for certain the answer to that. I think they must have realized that it would be spotted. I mean, it's a huge thing. I'm told it's... Like, yeah, it's 200 feet tall. That's 20 stories tall. That's a massive thing, and albeit it's not much substance to it, not not counting the array, but you're not going to pass something through that through the um, uh, atmosphere, even the higher stratosphere, without it being picked up. So for sure they had to know it was being sighted. I, I'm not crystal clear as to whether the trajectory was planned or not. The Chinese say it wasn't planned, but. Who knows? They may have been testing U.S. reactions, see how much they could get away with. Um, I'm not really sure. But the timing was bad as well. And that's where I think there may have been some screw-ups on the Chinese side. I think the right hand may not have been talking to the left hand in terms of the of the timing because Secretary of State Blinken was supposed to have been in Beijing now. That's been called off. And that's a visit that I think both sides wanted to have. Uh, will the U.S. learn anything from what they have downed? Well, they claim already. The Defense Department spoke to the spokesperson that they've learned something already from it. I presume from reading the signals that it must emanate uh, and its capacity to move around, which is limited but real. Uh, they'll learn a lot more if they can, and I presume they will, uh, retrieve all of the bits and pieces. I suspect it'll be in a lot of pieces. When I know the water sounds soft, but when you hit water yeah. coming down at speed, aircraft or whatever tend to break into many small pieces. But presumably enough money and time, they can reconstruct more or less what it was up to and what it was doing. Uh, what about China's reaction to this? Curious, I thought. At the beginning, not acknowledging it was theirs, and then... <laughs> 
sheepishly almost. I mean, very seldom does China apologize for anything. And that word regret jumped off the page at me. Um, that may tell me that they really, the timing hadn't been fully consulted in the Chinese hierarchy. They regretted uh, the that it entered and it was an inadvertent blah, blah, meteorological, not, not uh, security oriented. But then afterwards, they've reverted to more normal form, talking about overreaction on the American side and hysteria and those sorts of things. But I thought the reaction said quite a bit and tells me that they it may not have been the outcome they were looking for uh, in terms of, number one, it being shot down, but also wrecking um, a Blinken's trip. And do we know what path it took? Because obviously it was over Canada, I hear, for a while. Apparently it was. It seems that it crossed, crossed the Alaskan coast, then passed into Canada. I don't know its precise trajectory, but Canada's a big country, you know, and even running down from Alaska to Montana, that's a lot of territory and time. Um, I've been told that one, at least one commercial aircraft was warned about it, and it was well above commercial aircraft flying height, but it was still warned that it was there. And as you know, Canada shares with the United States uh, through NORAD uh, mm -hmm. a, uh, the methods of surveilling our airspace, including up to an in that height and even higher. So my guess is it's been tracked carefully right from when it, perhaps even when before it came into uh, U.S. airspace and in, while in ours. Uh, it seems to have been a very coordinated thing. I saw that the Secretary of Defense, Austin, made a point of thanking Canada for its contribution. Uh, at one point, there was chatter of a second, although that has not been verified or substantiated over Latin America. Have you heard anything more about that? Well, apparently now the, the Chinese have owned up to the fact that theirs is, is theirs as well. It seems to have been over Costa Rica and then flying, I guess, south, southeast, it crossed Colombia. And the Colombian uh, military said that they tracked it, decided it didn't pose a danger, and it's passed out of Colombian airspace. So it might be, who knows, by this point. Venezuela or headed out into the Atlantic, into the Atlantic, Southern Atlantic. So there clearly were two. Um, there might have been more, but clearly we know there's two. And I think that tip was given away by one of the Canadian briefers early on. It talked about another incident. And it only became clear a day or two later that this was the second balloon, which was in Latin America, as you say. Uh, has anybody tried to survey China this way? Very good question. I suspect in the fullness of time, uh, you would find um, some kind of of surveillance. I know the Americans used to fly U-2 aircraft over over China and mainland until they developed until the Chinese developed the means to shoot them down, which they did once. Uh, but I, it's tempting. I mean, the, the, most of Central Asia was then the Soviet Union, so that wouldn't have made it easier. So if it had been. It would have been a long time ago, and I certainly don't know that for sure. But I think the U.S. relies pretty successfully on their um, on their um, um, uh, satellite imagery. But if you go back into the Cold War, at that time when there was a basically a strategic alliance between China and the United States, Nixon and Mao, 
They, it was secret at the time, but we now know that the U.S. was allowed to open listening posts in China on the border in Xinjiang and other parts of China, listening to what the Soviets were up to in their rocket bases. So it's a complex past, but I don't I don't know of any precise American equivalent. I understand the Americans are also experimenting with balloons. They have this huge advantage of being able to stay up for a long time. But the idea that they ship them, risk shipping them over China seems not. Gordon Holden with us, Director Emeritus, China Institute, Professor of Political Science with the University of Alberta, talking about the balloon, uh, which the U.S. has now brought down just off the coast of uh, the eastern U.S. Gordon, as always, thanks so much for the time. Another fascinating story. I'm sure we'll chat again. Be well. Oh, thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, lots of talk about health care. Finally, the Prime Minister has agreed to sit down with the Premiers. They've been uh, banging at him for that so, um, since the pandemic started. It'd be three years now, uh, starting with the B.C. Premier trying to rally all the provinces together uh, way back when. And boy, has our opinion on all of this changed. Uh, at one time, we would just puff our chest out and how great the Canadian healthcare system uh, is. Post-pandemic, uh, we know where we are with that. And uh, people talking about reform and accountability and 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 change to the point now where uh, an Ipsos poll, 59% have uh, said that they support private delivery of publicly funded healthcare services. This always seems to be an either or uh, debate. It's either public versus private. It's Canada versus the U.S. Blah, blah, blah. And they, like anything, the solution is usually somewhere in the middle. Let's bring in Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Polling in with us now. Daryl, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing well, Scott. Hope you are too. So talk about these numbers and also in, in the article that I read, your impression of this, because this is the first time you've seen such a shift uh, in, in the time that you've been doing this when it comes to our attitudes on healthcare. What do the numbers say? Well, basically what you just said, about 60% of us say that we think that uh, maybe private delivery of some healthcare services, obviously through the public system, is the way to go, which, by the way, is acknowledging an awful lot of what's happening in the uh, in the current healthcare system. But also something that I never thought I would see, uh, 60% of people saying that it's all right for people who can afford it to buy healthcare services, which is not something you commonly see in research on healthcare. But this shows um, the degree to which Canadians are, because of the current uh, situation with the healthcare system, uh, Canadians are being forced into considering options they previously wouldn't have been uh, you know, even thinking about. Is this the reality check we saw during the global pandemic? I think it's a lot of things. I mean, the global pandemic's part of it, but I think the other part of it is the rapid aging of the population that's going on and all the mm. pressures that are currently on the healthcare system. And Scott, you know, when we used to ask people, uh, so, you know, what's the most important issue facing the country? And you'd see healthcare pop up to the top of the list. It would be people saying, I'm worried about what it's going to be like 20 years from now, whether right. it's going to be there for me when I need it. Now that that horizon has moved much more close and people are saying, I'm worried about the healthcare system right now and whether or not I'd be able to access any healthcare services that I would need right now. They're really worried about that. And as a result, they're open to thinking about maybe new ways of organizing and new ways of funding it. Is this a turning point? Is this a, a seismic shift here? 
Well, I think the prime minister and the premiers are going to be going to the usual place that we go. But by the way, there's been at least, uh, you know, I've been around this game for a long time. A couple of times I've seen in the past where we've come up with 10-year plans and, the, mm. you know, the, the, the public system gets the money that the government promises and all the rest of it. And we end up right back to to where we where we yeah. were um so the question is uh, whether this time is going to be any different hard to say but i i would say that the public opinion environment about, around what's going on right now is very different we're hearing more and more you can't be doing the same thing and just keep adding money for it the prime minister said we need reforms we need accountability well reform means change so um it appears the canadians are now ready for that are our, our, our leaders are because they seem to be caught behind the public on this well the politics of healthcare is, used to be really simple it used to be if you talk about anything that has to do with private money coming into the system yep. you can kiss your electoral prospect, prospects goodbye yeah uh, i don't know if that's necessarily the case anymore um, I think that uh, that conversations about healthcare and fu- the funding of healthcare from a political perspective could become more complicated uh, we've had Jugmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, on. He was on with us just yesterday uh, talking about solutions, and I, I kept bringing up reform, which means change. Uh, he was saying more money, hire more health care, uh, doctors, nurses, more money, same old system. Are Canadians past that point? Well, 40% of them are absolutely just where uh, Mr. Singh is. So, you know, if you got mm-hmm. 40% in an election, you do really, really well. <laughs> for mm. probably a majority government. But the other 60% are sitting back and they're saying, you know what? I don't know if same old, same old is going to you know, be able to deal with this. Uh, it doesn't seem to be dealing with it today. And I'm really worried about it dealing with it uh, going forward. And also on the, uh, you know, the um, we're just going to put more tax dollars into this. Canadians are feeling really strapped. Yeah. In terms of the cost of living these days and telling them the taxes are going to go up. And by the way, you can say it's corporate taxes or the rich are going to pay for it or whatever. But Canadians eventually, as they figured out with the carbon tax, so I've started to figure out, well, actually, the people we're talking about here are you. <laughs> yeah, that, that's yeah. when things start to get a bit tested. So I think it's not going to be as simple as it once as it once was around the healthcare issue. And as I mentioned before, I think the whole topic is about to become more complicated. It seems people really want results now. Uh, the status quo is not working. They want to see change. Yeah, they really do. And, and, you know, anybody who's been to a hospital recently or has had a direct experience with the healthcare system realizes that, you know, it's a lot harder than we assume that it was. It's a lot yeah. more difficult than we assume that it was. So even though when we ask Canadians on surveys, you know, what's the things that you're proudest about in the country? And healthcare is right at the top of the list of those things, you know, top two or three. I'm really starting to wonder if it stands for the same thing anymore in terms of the way that Canadians regard it. It was funny. I was um, uh, there was information a week or two ago about uh, who feels better about their healthcare system, Canadians or Americans, and it was Americans, <laughs> like three quarters. Yeah, we're fine with it. Everything's good. Whereas Canadians, it's barely fifty percent now. So it's funny how uh, we've gone from sort of this uh, almost uh, b- you know bragging ab- about how great it was till to you know sort of putting our tail between our legs and thinking, oh my goodness, we got to fix this here now. You know, I, th- I couldn't have summed it up better. I mean, I think that's what's going on. I think things have become a lot more present. It's become a really about what's happening today and a real discomfort 
about how the system is working based on people's personal experiences and the worries they have about what the what they what could greet them if they come into contact with the healthcare system. They're experiencing this in their day to day lives. So just standing up and saying, you know, it's going to be um, this way and it's our great tradition and all the rest of it. I don't know if that's enough these days. Gerald Brooker, CEO of Ipsos Polling, new one out, fifty nine percent express support for private delivery of publicly funded health services. Daryl, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Merritt Stiles is officially the new leader of Ontario's NDP following a majority vote over the weekend. Uh, joining us now, Merritt Stiles, leader of the Ontario NDP, Devonport NDP MPP, and is with us now. Merritt, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm great. It's great to be here. Congratulations. Uh, obviously, this is a new leader, new energy. What's different now with the party? What do you bring to uh, to this party um, with the new leadership and, and new energy? Well, you know, I, I do think that I bring some new energy. Uh, I also have a vision for how we can build a better province for Ontarians. Um, and I'm excited about getting this moving. I, I think the work starts right now, and that's winning uh, battles that are before us right now in in, in challenging uh, Doug Ford and some of his, like, egregious decisions for our, our province and also building the foundation for the next election in 2026 because uh, we need uh, to defeat this government and we're going to need to come up with some really great uh, solutions that inspire people to vote for us. Uh, liberals uh, provincially are having some difficulty right now. Uh, actually, rumors floating that they've approached uh, uh, the Greens, Mike Schreiner, to to uh, be a leadership candidate for them. Did anybody approach you, Merritt, and say, "Come <laughs> run for the Liberals"? I don't think they would dare. I'm, uh, you know, I, I've been I've been out there since September when I launched my campaign. Uh, you know running for the leadership of this party. And, you know, we're in a strong position. We are the official opposition for the second time in a row. We've got uh, an incredible team of MPPs who are in every corner of this province. Uh, We're in a really fantastic position. Uh, You know, the Liberals, um, they didn't make win enough seats to reach official party status again uh, in the last election. And I know they've got their their issues they've got to deal with. Um, but we're really focused on the task before us, which is to to build now, uh, to build a bigger, bolder, uh, new Democratic Party so we can defeat Doug Ford and form a government that's going to deliver for people. Is this really an opportunity now because of uh, liberals faltering and you being the official opposition? This is this is quite an opportunity at this point, is it? You know, I I it, Certainly, I think that what I'm finding when I travel around is that people want us to be doing work now. And so I think the fact that we are, we were so unified behind the one candidate that we were ready to go, we're not going to have to waste a lot of time uh, doing the kind of same kind of soul searching. I think it does put us in a really good place uh, because, you know, there's no question we do need to unify behind a progressive party that's going to take us, be able to take on Doug Ford. And um, yeah, I think I have the experience, but I definitely know that my team is really strong. Our our party is very strong and uh, we're ready. I mean, we're ready now and we're just going to get uh, more ready as the years go on.
Uh, talk about the fact that there was only one candidate, obviously you. Uh, and what does that say about the strength of the party? Or was it just, you know, uh, so convincing, so unifying that you were the person? What What do you say to those that are uh, cautious that there nobody else did run against you? Yeah, you know, I mean, it was, I mean, for sure, for the last bunch of months, I've been, I've been campaigning all out. Um, and I know that other uh, caucus members, other folks had had taken a strong look at it and considered it. Um, but I think that what this shows is we are unified, right? We are uh, a party that knows what we want. Uh, we don't want to waste time. We want to get that going. Uh, we know that come February 21st, when the legislature returns, we need to be able to be up in the House, uh, taking on Doug Ford and his government, and and that we that Ontarians are counting on us, right? I mean, we don't have another year or two years to do soul searching. We know who we are and what we stand for. And um, so I'm really, I was just really um, honored, you know, really to have the support of our membership and um, to be able to get the real work started, uh, which is actually building that movement that's going to defeat Doug Ford. Uh, the Prime Minister tomorrow meeting with the Premiers, obviously a lot of uh, attention put on this. Uh, the Prime Minister wants reforms and, and accountability. Uh, reforms equal change. What sort of change do you see uh, with health care and, and delivery at the provincial level? Well, I won't lie. I, I'm not I'm not happy at all with the direction this government is taking things. I mean, and I think I I like a lot of Ontarians, like most Ontarians, you know, we, we really we value our public health care system. And what the province has done, what the government has done under Doug Ford, and, and frankly, previous governments too, is they've just chipped away at our healthcare system to a point where now we're facing a crisis. But the crisis right now is a crisis in human resources. It's it's staff. It's not having enough nurses and other healthcare workers to do the work. And why? I mean, a big part of this is because Doug Ford and his government have frozen their wages, have shown them this deep, deep disrespect. And, and they're even fighting them in the courts to this day to keep their wages down. And I think, you know, if we want to keep those folks, if we want to improve our healthcare system, we need to treat those workers well. We need to be looking at how we draft, we attract more healthcare workers into our system. And we do need to innovate. We do need let to me, innovate. Let me but ask you that. They're in our public healthcare system. Let me ask you this, because, uh, you know, we just had Ipsos on, new poll out, 60%, 59% of people, of Canadians, uh, express support for private delivery of publicly funded health care. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, uh, and I know that's federal, it's, it's not provincial, but again, saying we need just more money into the same system, more money into the same system. Do you think people are are, are still on, on track with that? Do you think they, or do you think they want change? They want reform? I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of people, and I, and I looked at those polls, and I would say that in Ontario, people feel actually a little differently, generally. Like, in Ontario, people seem to be less favorable of, of a move to privatization of healthcare. But I will say that for us as New Democrats, you know, I mean, for me, the real key here is the move of, of public health dollars into for-profit private Healthcare, and and what that means is definitely without question. I mean, it's called for profit for a reason, right? It's it's moving money out of patient care and into uh, shareholder corporate pockets, right? I mean, that that's why they get into the business. So so for me, that's a less efficient way of delivering this healthcare. No question. There are lots of ways that we operate right now in and outside of it. Not everything, obviously, is provided in a hospital, for example. We know that, but um, but we can do it. 
uh, without building on the for-profit side. And I think the problem we're going to have is that this move right now is actually going, threatens to really worsen the delivery of healthcare. It's not a solution. It's going to, it's going to mean that more of our healthcare workers I was just talking about get sucked out of uh, hospitals and other public health care institutions and into uh, private for-profit companies. Agencies. Isn't that a bit of a red herring, though, Merrick? Isn't that a bit of a red herring, though, Merrick? Because at the end of the day, everybody needs employees. Everybody is hiring. Everybody everybody wants to put, supply more doctors and nurses. I mean, uh, you know, is, is that kind of not like no. a... No. no, because, you know, what's going to happen is, and this is, a, and I was, you know, I was talking to a, a CEO of a not-for-profit um, long-term care facility the other day. They're they're freaking out about this because what it means is, you know, they're fro- they're stuck being able to pay those nurses and other healthcare workers a certain wage because the government enforces that. But some private company gets into this business, they can offer whatever they want, and and they're all coming out of the same pool. They're all coming out of the same pool. And what that means is that the people in the long-term care facilities or the people in the hospitals, the patients who need, you know, more serious care, more who are more need more urgent care, right, or have more serious issues. Are the ones that are going to be without the healthcare uh, personnel there to support them, and that is the problem. We don't have an infinite pool of healthcare workers; it doesn't exist. I wish it did, but we're not there. And the government, and I would say, if I was Doug Ford going to see the uh, prime minister, I would be saying, uh, "We need a national uh, plan um, for healthcare staffing. We need a plan, and we need the federal government to step up. Uh, but I would also be uh, ensuring that those dollars uh, go into a public not-for-profit health care and, and that not one penny should be going into uh, corporate pockets. Uh, that's just not going to solve the problem. It's going to actually uh, take public dollars out of patient care. Merritt Stiles with us, leader of the NDP, uh, brand new leader of the NDP, officially installed as of this weekend. Merritt, congratulations. Good luck moving forward. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, as you know, the balloon we were talking about on uh, Friday that was uh, drifted in and out of Saskatchewan, I guess, and then down through Montana. Uh, and, of course, the U.S. is having none of that. Let's get her down right now. There you go. There she goes. I got enough ammo in the barn just to take it down. You don't need to even bring a jet out. Uh, anyway, so, uh, and we talked that it, chances are they it, they would not let it get too far out of sight before bringing it down. Uh, just to see what the heck is in it. Let's bring in Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, former, uh, former CSIS analyst, and with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. What's this about earthquakes in Hamilton? What have you been up to today? <laughs> I know. It's just, no, actually, it was centered out of Buffalo. I think they've just oh, okay. real. I think they've Play just real. Buffalo, Scott. Go ahead. I, I, well, it, I think they've just realized the Bills haven't made the playoffs, and they're a little <laughs> upset about it. All right, I digress. So what was your thought when you first saw this and this giant thing and, and what was happening? I mean, it just seems very bizarre to the average person. What were your thoughts? I think bizarre is the operative word here, Scott. You know, people joked about it with being a balloon. You know, what what damage can a balloon do kind of thing? Countries already have lots of surveillance technology like satellites and stuff. To me, it wasn't so much what this balloon was capable of, but it's a message behind it. And the message that's behind it, Scott, is the Chinese telling us we're going to do whatever the hell you want. 
what are you going to do about it? And you and I have talked in the past, I believe, uh, about Chinese aggression here in Canada. They've got illegal police stations monitoring Chinese. They've been harassing Uyghurs and Tibetans. So China's basically cocking a snook at the Canada United States and saying that uh, we're going to do this and uh, we'll wait for your response. So do they care they get ca- they got caught here? Ah, hard to say. I, I I don't really think so. I mean, I can't read Chinese minds, obviously, and I'm not a China specialist, as you know. But I think they basically said, well, "Let's let's uh, let's let's throw up a trial balloon and see what happens." And uh, you know, there was a response to it. But uh, maybe it's uh, a way of saying we've got the technology and we're going to do it, and uh, we don't care what you think, kind of thing. And, and you know, again, as to what the, what the intelligence was that was was gained through it is hard to say. The Americans will look at the equipment to see how sophisticated it was. But this just, just to me, is just one way of China saying that uh, we'll do whatever the hell we want, uh, irrespective of uh, airspace, irrespective of international norms. Uh, are you surprised the U.S. shot it down? And will they learn anything from this? Not surprised at all. Uh, you can't allow that kind of uh, infiltration into your sovereign space by a, a country. Let's face it, Scott, that is not a friend of China and uh, sorry, sorry, not a friend of the United States, not a friend of Canada either. What will they learn? They might learn a little bit about the equipment that was on the balloon, its capabilities, but I'm guessing that we probably already have a pretty good idea of what China's got in the arsenal. So it's not so much what they'll learn about it that they've basically sent a message saying, uh, don't fly balloons in our airspace unless they're birthday balloons. In that case, send the cake as well. <laughs> what about the route this would have taken? Because it was it spent a certain amount of time in Canada. You mentioned Saskatchewan, and I'm thinking, wow, if the Chinese have a balloon over Saskatchewan gathering intelligence... Um, they may want to relook at their intelligence parties. No, no insult to Saskatchewanians. I don't want to, you know, you get hate mail because of why I mm-hmm. said that. But the other problem, of course, with balloons is that essentially, my understanding, and again, I'm not, I'm not a balloon maker, is that they're at the vagaries of the wind. So wherever the wind takes them, that's where they go. It's not like a satellite, which you, which you can you can control. Um, Canada's reaction has been interesting, um, you know, a little bit forceful, which is kind of nice to see, given we've been ignoring intelligence on China for the past 30 years. So, yeah, you know, we're part of NORAD. We're part of American allies. So let's let's back our Americans friend on us. What about the fact that this was over Montana, where apparently there's some missile silos and such? And, and, and apparently it did have apparatus on it that did allow it to direct itself. It could go around yeah. in circles and hover over some areas. So what about the areas that it was over? That's probably not random. Another thing to bear in mind for your listeners, Scott, is you know the uh, the ability to take pictures from very high up. Now, this balloon was flying, I believe, at sixty thousand feet, which is almost two times what air what commercial aircraft fly at. Mm-hmm. The cameras are that good; they can take pictures of license plates that that far down on the ground. That's how much the technology has advanced over the years. Um, no, it's not a coincidence they went over Montana as opposed to Buffalo, for example, uh, because they knew that's where the Americans have some of their Minuteman missiles and their other, and their other uh, sites that are, you know, sensitive to national security and the military. Uh, does this happen a lot? Uh, and will we see more of this stray balloons bring, being brought down? Probably more than you think. I would imagine that when it does happen and it's maybe not as serious or not deemed to be as injurious to national security you don't hear about it in the news it kind of is hush hush within the military and the intelligence apparatus i'd be very surprised if this was the first time this happened scott but uh for whatever reason this one the americans decided to react quite forcefully and maybe they've set a precedent now so that if it does happen again in the future we will hear about it and the americans will take a similar action to, to down any other balloons that fly over montana or, or buffalo uh, surprised at China's reaction to this. They said it was uh, overkill, no pun intended. But again, <laughs> if you were to fly an American balloon into uh, China, I'm not sure how long it would last. 
Well, what made me laugh, of course, is the denial at first that was a weather balloon. You know, I, yeah. I, I was taught by my dear, my dear late mother, may God rest her soul, Scott, that if you get you get caught with your hand in the cookie jar, yeah. you might want to say it's, you know, th- those are chocolate chips on your face and not some kind of skin coloring. Uh, China should have owned up to right from the beginning. It was a joke that they said it was a weather balloon. And yeah, will they down an American balloon? Do the Americans have balloons? I have no idea. But um Going way back, uh, Scott, in the 60s, there was a, f- a famous incident uh, in the Soviet Union when Gary Powers was flying a U-2 spy plane about 70,000 feet in the air, and he was shot down and survived. And that was a huge blow to American-Soviet relations back then. So if they do down something of the Americans, it could lead to, en- I think, enhanced tensions in the future. Uh, on the note of uh, of tensions, I mean, it, 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 where is this going? Is this escalating? I mean, we didn't hear about this a year ago. I hope not. But, you know, things have escalated on many fronts, Ukraine and Russia. China keeps uh, saber rattling over Taiwan. It has made you know lots of noises about the South China Sea. It gets angry when Americans uh, sail ships in, in the Taiwan Strait because they see it as territorial waters as opposed to international waters, which the Americans and everybody else sees it as. So tensions are mounting, I think. And let's just hope that, that cooler has it to prevail. I mean, U.S. Secretary of State had to cancel his visit to Beijing, though, because of this. So let's, you know, more uh, jaw jaw and less war wars, as Winston Churchill used to say. All right. Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former CSIS analyst. Phil, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, sir. Stop blaming Buffalo for the earthquake. All right. <laughs> I, I honestly, I hope they're not listening. Uh, it is. Thank you, Phil. Much appreciated. Okay. But honestly, think about that. You know, I mean, we're, how do you explain an earthquake? And uh, nobody really thought the bills would get eliminated as quickly as they did. I think it's just the aftershock. That's all it is, Phil. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley is with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can hear him coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you are well. I I am well-ish. I got to tell you, though, Scott, uh, I don't know who uses the studio before I do. I think it's Rick. I think Rick is the last one to use this studio before I do, whoever it is is absolutely deaf as a doornail because when i plug in my headphones it's like i've stuck my head in the engine of a 767 it is so loud yeah and every time i'm like that guy with yeah and has to turn it down but now my eardrums have slapped against each other I I'm think sorry, you may actually be using Roy Green's preset because okay. he very much looks like the the tape commercial guy okay. every time That's he goes to the studio. Well, then it's That's Roy. what I was going to say. My yeah. goodness, is it? It's every time. I'm, I'm losing hearing every time I come in from that initial burst of sound, that auditory explosion. Anyway. I'm sorry. Have you been talking? Because I can't hear a word that you're saying. <laughs> We're all deaf all right. in this business, I, know. I think. Oh, it's time. I'm having a real hard time, but I digress. All right. I have heard the Hamilton Bulldogs being mentioned more now in the last week or so uh, since they've decided they were going to go to to Brantford. I've heard more chatter about this in the last couple of days. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't worry. No, 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 no. We don't want them to go. No, 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 no. They're going to be staying here. No, 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 no. Uh, And I know you wrote the column on this. We've talked about it on the on the air and such. It seems there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of sidestepping now, which I, I don't know if I heard this much chatter before they announced they were leaving. Uh, I would say that I would think you are absolutely correct. I don't, um, this is one of the issues. This is one of the issues for sure. Now, I mean, uh, again, it is, um, I give credit to Michael Anlauer for having kept the team here despite some challenges over the years. But, um, 
Let me say, uh, I stand to be corrected on this, Scott. So I will challenge anyone listening to go and do the search for me. But even after Michael Anlauer announced that the team was moving to Brantford for three years and then there was all the concern about whether or not they would come back or not and all the people talking about it. And I, the name change. And the name change. I, I don't know that a single member of city council on Twitter has made a comment about this. Hmm. Not mm. like to say, hey, no, don't, you know, they say stuff about everything. If it's That's because inter- they're, they're on the edge of town looking at the urban boundary. If it's International Tulip Awareness Day, we have a tweet from somebody about the thing. Yeah, and yet with yeah. this, not that I found. Now, I, I, if someone else, if someone did, if one of the counselors did, I will certainly be the first to stand up and say I'm corrected here. But it just, th- as I say, it, it seems like it feels like for a lot of people, there is just not a great deal of interest or quite frankly, respect. And I think that's why a lot of people are saying, why wouldn't you go? Uh, so is that at City Hall or from the fan base, the city, are you talking about? So you think they're, just, they're not feeling the love from the city, uh, uh, from City Hall as opposed to the fan base? That's a that's a big part of it. But that, you know, but there's also the fan base issue. But yeah, then, yeah. then there's the whole other thing, Scott, which we need way more time than we have right now to talk about. And that is... You know, there are people, I know that some people poo-poo this out of hand and they say, no, no, this is totally a non-starter. There are people, I have talked to the people who say, I don't want to go downtown. It's not a place I feel good about. And I'm I'm fascinated. There's no way we're ever going to know this. There's no, because the city has made it clear. I think that's just stupid. Well, it may be, but Scott, Have you been to any other city? Have you been anywhere? Like, like per- what, what is downtown, is, yeah. is downtown Hamilton any different than any other downtown anywhere yes. else? Oh, yes. Yes. I, I would say that intersection in particular. Uh, I would say there are people who have seen things that would say, yes, that area does not make me feel particularly safe. But the point is perception is reality. And if you live in Dundas, Ancaster, Stony Creek, Flamborough, Waterdown, wherever, and you believe what you think about downtown, you probably are not coming downtown. So whether it was, Scott, whether that area was paved in gold, it doesn't matter. If people believe that about the downtown, that's how they perceive it. It doesn't stop him from going to restaurants. Uh, does it? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Try to get a uh, try to get a, a table at a restaurant in downtown Hamilton on a Saturday night. It's difficult. I mean, there's it's it's a it's it's you know the city's out there. It's moving. I mean, if if you're too scared to come out of your house and come downtown, I think there's bigger issues. No, than I what think we got going on downtown. I think you may have a different clientele for downtown restaurant dining and going to a Bulldogs game. I think you may be looking at a different demographic for those two things. Not to say that people who go to Bulldogs games don't eat out ever. I'm simply telling you, I have talked to many people who say, ah, I just don't love the idea. That may not, that may be totally without merit. Yeah. But if you believe that about the area and you think you're nervous about going down, you won't. (laughs) Well, good luck if they ever go to Toronto. All right, uh, JT finally uh, meeting with the premiers. They're going to talk health care tomorrow. Are we going to? Do you think we're going to see anything grand come out of this this session tomorrow? Well, my answer to that will be: How could each side get the publicity to say that they made mm. this happen? Now you've got uh, all the premiers and point. the prime minister, and if any announcement is made, who gets the credit for this? I, every politician, most politicians, want to be the one to say, look what we did. 
So I, I'm, I, I would be optimistic. I'd love to believe that we would get something out of this. I'd love to believe they all walk out arm in arm, linked and say, look what we did. But I'll, 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 I'll wait and see, <laughs> Scott. I'll, I'll hold my wild optimism on that one. That's not to say that down the road something couldn't happen. I just think somehow any one of these announcements is going to be positioned so that somebody gets to say, this was us, not them. All right, Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. My name is Herman. The NDP doesn't want any changes because, let's face it, the unions, um, they get lots of uh, donations for their war chest to fight an election from the unions. And so, therefore, that's why the NDP does not want any changes. And they can't think outside the box other than the fact, you know, that the unions pour funds into their own um, election war chest. So it's uh, pretty sad, but um, that's where we're at. But we do need to make changes. 